All right. That's nice music there. Yes, it is. That was, song you're hearing, Toby, what was it? Uh, I don't know. What is it called? It's called, the, <laughs> it's called The Road Beneath My Feet. It's the I'm newest single out from it's the It's our Emory brand album. new song. It's our hit song. It's the most punk uh, song that Emory has ever written. Uh, we're not really a punk band, for those of you that don't listen to our music, but uh, it's, very, it's about as punk. We were just on the... Uh, Lead Singer Syndrome podcast talking about it, and we were like, I guess we had to try something new. So you and Dave, our drummer, wrote a punk song, and you were like, don't really sing punk lyrics or, or melodies to it. Try and make it different. I was like, I just right. can't. So I just kind of went for it, <laughs> and we just kind of pulled off a old old punk song almost, and it, it's really cool. Yeah, we mixed it up a little bit, but I wanted to do something totally up tempo, which has always been yep. scary territory because it feels silly or ha- too happy, and it just doesn't right. match what some of the things. But then I think we pulled the chorus back in and made it feel very emery once you sit into there but that is a new single out now we, our pre-order for album is going really well which is crazy if since we already have emery land we've already funded it uh people already have a lot of it there's a bunch of it out on spotify but yet people are still purchasing albums from bands all over the place and i think that's just so wonderful so thank you everybody that's bought vinyl or whatever pre-order packages any pre-order package you get you get the digital download of the album right away it's available now also, today's show is sponsored by Hymns. What a common issue. What's a common issue that men face but don't want to talk about? Think long and hard. Try Hymns by starting out with a free online visit when you go to forhymns.com slash bcpod. That's forhymns.com slash bcpod. And also, today's show is sponsored by stamps.com. Get your four week free trial plus free postage and a digital scale by going to stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and enter our code BADCHRISTIAN. Thank That's stamps.com, promo code BADCHRISTIAN. Okay, Robin, thank you for coming back. And no. so not only is it your second time on the podcast, but it's in a very short time frame. So um, I am honored. Yeah, well, it seems like you've been doing a lot of media over the last uh, – would you, have you been doing more media since the whole coronavirus thing and everything? Yeah, I, I think I have a lot of podcasts and things like that, which mm-hmm. means I'm not so lonely here. It's stuck at home all the time. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a weird effect of that, of, of feeling uh, – I'm starting to get a, a new feeling of – you know, we've been doing podcasting a long time where we're doing this professional thing over Skype, but I'm starting to get in the territory now where my text threads and hanging out on podcasts and Zoom calls starts to feel more like hanging out for real. So it's it's giving me a little bit of that social benefit, like I really am around people. So that that's one bright side. It, it, it's really funny. I was just thinking about because we're our new album is coming out, and I was thinking if the pandemic had happened in the '90s, what, what would music people do like i mean even the early 2000s but go back 90s i mean like you couldn't go to the store and buy new music and you could so you could do nothing i mean like it it, you could do nothing you wouldn't know anything what your bands are doing there's no internet to follow them there's no i mean there's no podcast or 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 streaming i mean what we are eh, unbelievably fortunate in some ways to be able to be this connected i mean we're all in different parts of the country and are able to talk i mean that is pretty crazy i mean in the 90s you would have just been in your house watching what dan rather or or something you know or something like that to give you information but you know this whole lockdown is completely unprecedented it could be that in the 90s we wouldn't have considered such a lockdown like that's a great great point yeah you're right might have been better yeah you're right everybody was going i'm I'm gonna go buy the new cd or record they just went probably I, I was under no impression that, and that's why one of the reasons we have you back on the show is because I find this just the most wonderful opportunity to reflect 
and learn lessons quickly because it was it was March fourth when you were on the show before, and we were talking about this a while ago. Yeah, yeah, it seems like a year ago, doesn't it? It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. I looked it back and scrolled through to see what date it was, and I scrolled way too far in the feed. To, and I was like, oh no, that was recently. <laughs> you know, yeah. but it feels like a long time ago. And we had the crisis kind of incoming, and at that time, it was not even close to anybody thinking that a lockdown was possible. I didn't think it would be. I, I think China was having some lockdown stuff, and we thought that's funny that China's like that and can do stuff like that. It didn't seem like a remote possibility. Yeah. But we were taking seriously some of your warnings and predictions and the way you were talking about it. But even though I was very open to it when you were on the show, I, I found myself having things ringing in my head that you had said that I was not open to even when you were on the show when I thought I was having you on to be open to where we were headed. And so we've had a lot of twists and turns in the meantime, and I feel like everybody's been wrong about many things and has had their expectations of everything readjusted so we now have the opportunity to not a decade later or with tons of right. hindsight but just look right back at how goofy all of our thinkings yeah. were a couple of months ago it's a great a great learning opportunity so i'm somewhat of a contrarian and we contrarians <laughs> are usually in the position of saying no you guys are wrong and then we don't get proven right or wrong because it just takes a long time to find out anything so in a situation where stuff happens fast, then a contrarian like myself says, hey, I could say contrarian stuff and then be proven right soon, and then they can't say I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so it's not. very tempting now to say, okay, a real <laughs> test where, you know, every a lot's at stake, and I can finally, you know, get out of the insane asylum, for God's sake. <laughs> well, Robin, there's still a lot of people that think you're very insane, though. I keep seeing it. I mean, you keep, you keep yeah, bringing it up. Okay, but I can still have a track record to point right. to and say, look, I got these things right. <laughs> well, you're then you you're in the dangerous territory of then people start accusing you of you. So you're glad it happened, so you can just be proven right and stuff Maybe like that. <laughs> but you know, it depends on whether you predict good or bad things, basically. Yes. Well, you're notorious for pre predicting bad things. Is not a problem. I, know, that's I, I have a lot of hopeful predictions. I have a lot of things. I think if only we would try stuff, they would yes. help. Right. Well, that's why we had you on last time. You you made that really. It, I was like, man, that, you, your take was so um, um, uh, amazing, and it felt it it almost it was. I guess I would have to say I was even talking to my wife about it. It was right. You were saying that if if we went ahead and gave people, you know, uh, the coronavirus potentially, we could maybe mitigate some of the the pain that we would see. And people just were trying to obliterate you and cast you off as it was foolishness or whatever. And I was like, no, that I, it does make some sense, even though I had no clue of what this would turn out to be. And you were saying some things that were so they were they were strong, and people don't want to hear those at all. They only want to argue with you. It seems we're, we're still really early into this. <laughs> I mean, it, a lot has happened in a couple months. We only have maybe five percent of people infected, right? And you know, it could go up to seventy percent. So in terms of the story that will be told in a few years, we're still in the early part of the story. Sure. And so there's still room for heroes and villains doing good things and bad things in the rest of what's happening. Lots of room. Let's start with some um, things that uh, you were that you didn't expect or like, has there been things that you've been wrong about? Like, what are the things that, that have the data that's come out or any events that come out that were that were you didn't see coming at all thus far? Well, just the fact of the massive lockdown. Mm -hmm. so we're all you know, accepted and, and familiar with it, but you have to look back and realize we never, the world never did something like this for a pandemic right. in the past. Well, so first of all, 
this thing escaped farther than anybody ever contained a pandemic before, right? Mm -hmm. So initially, like, it's a very small number, a few tens, few hundreds. There's hope, okay, we could get a lock on that. We could keep it from spreading. And, and that's happened for a lot of diseases, Ebola, the original SARS, things like that. But when it reached the level that it had by our last conversation, it had gone farther than anything that had ever been contained. And mm -hmm. so most, most uh, public health officials basically said, I, I guess it's out. Now what we have to do is like flatten the curve, manage how it uh, spreads, mitigate the harms, but it's going to go everywhere. And public health officials basically kind of said that at the time. And then elites in the world went crazy. They said, no. They said, we are not giving up on this thing. Right. Dare, how dare you give up? There are lives at stake. We must commit full-scale war here, commitment to not letting this thing spread. And mm. In a remarkably short time, all the elites in the entire world agreed together with that story. And then the entire world together locked down. And would you call that a, in the category of overreaction? It, it might well be, but this is the first thing. It was surprising. Right. Like, that had never happened before. We'd never, we've had pandemics, we've done things, but just a massive lockdown the world, that's almost never happened in history as a response to a pandemic. And it happened because of this framing where people said, no, uh, you know, yes, it seems like it could go everywhere, but no, we're not going to accept that. And we must up our game and, and throw more effort at it. And so we took this heroic stance of we're going to lock down and keep this thing from spreading. Mm -hmm. And that was a surprise to me. I, I didn't think we'd go that far. <laughs> and so, you know, from that date, basically, say, if you look in the United States, the cases per day flattened out and it's come down a bit. And, you know, initially I was predicting, well, it's just going to keep growing because, you know, that's right. what happens. Last time you were here, we were talking about getting the, the high school gyms and converting them to ICUs, for yeah. instance. Yeah, because there was going to just be a lot of cases because this was just going to spread. So I was surprised at the level of lockdown that happened the whole world over. Less surprising, of course, is the results varied. Because, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, the thing I was worried about back then, I'm still worried about now. You say, okay. Some places you succeed and you squash it and you really crush it. Other places you don't. Some places it keeps growing. Now we've got a world where some places it's growing, some places have squashed it. Now what? Mm -hmm. Because you can't just lock down forever. You right. can't afford that. That's very painful. But like in the United States, if the cases are just kind of constant, how long do you hang out at this constant cases rate before you say, I guess this isn't working. We got to do something else. So you either got to double down and do something a lot stronger or you got to back off and say, I guess we're not going to win. And, you know, the, people have given the old saying about, you know, you can't have a peeing section of the swimming pool, mm -hmm. which is true. I mean, basically, in a place like the United States, we're not going to really make strong borders between the states. Right. Whatever happens in, you know, if just a few states, it goes wild and goes bad. That's going to come back and affect most everyone else. Maybe yeah. New Zealand and Taiwan are islands and they can put strong borders and if they lock it out. They've got it locked out. But I'm still worried. I still look at the United States. I go, look, we kept the cases flat, but now we're letting go of lockdown. Now it's going to go spreading. We just delayed for a bit, but I'm not sure that was worth the cost because it was very expensive delay. And what do we have now that we didn't have March 4th? Right. We still don't seem to have anything like a, a plan or anything. Right? You know, we have a modest scaling up of testing and some other things, but not, not so much as to justify this level of pain. So you could assess it by just saying we have bought time, but at a great cost. 
and squandered the time in many ways. And squandered the time that we bought that we paid a great cost for. And, and now here, you know, allow a lot of people are saying, "How dare you open up?" And there's a lot of loud noises about that. But they don't, and they're they're pointing in a dozen different directions. You should do this plan and that plan. We need more of this and more of the other thing. But I say the key thing is they're not all behind the same plan. Right. Yes. Like because right. yeah. that's what happened back in I'll March, right? That was the remarkable not. thing, right? The whole yeah. all the elites in the entire world, they all suddenly together were behind the same story. Of course, lockdown, right? But they weren't all behind the same kind of lockdown, and that's part of what's happened since then. If they had all agreed, then we're going to cop. Everybody should do exactly what Wuhan did, or right. you know, then if we would have copied that, maybe we would then all have sort of the same outcome. We would all be doing the same thing. But we didn't. Everybody said lockdown, but every place does it different. Everybody has their own style and their own rules, and everybody invented their own things. And that means we've got a variety of outcomes. But now what? How do we do? Some places have suppressed it and other places haven't. The places that haven't, they, they can't keep going on forever. So then it's going to grow there. And now we're going to split the world into the places that don't have it and the places that do. And how long can you keep those borders? You're going to have to have walls between the, you know, the countries that have succeeded and the countries that haven't. Yeah, so we have lots of twists and turns to come as we're just getting going. All right, let's take a break uh, from all of this information and give you some really good news about hymns. We've been talking about hymns for years now, basically, uh, and they are a wellness brand for men. What's a common issue that men face but don't always want to talk about? And I'm telling you, think long and hard about it. I believe you know what I'm talking about. 40% of men by age 40 struggle from not being able to get and maintain an erection. Why do guys turn to weird solutions, you know, those those what, gas station pills or weird ointments or whatever people are trying? Seriously, I don't even know anything about that stuff. Uh, what you need to do is check out Hems because you could discover the tiny pill worthy of actually a big celebration. Seriously, 4hems.com is the one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Uh, we They have been a longtime sponsor of the podcast, always treated us really well. I know several people have used their products and just have glowing remarks from, uh, in all areas of that, uh, you know, male wellness. And so, uh, Thanks to science, uh, you know, erectile dysfunction, it actually can be optional now. HEMS connects you with real licensed doctors and FDA-approved pharmaceutical products to treat ED. Well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you combat, combat ED. Prescription solutions backed uh, by science and made more affordable. Seriously, it's so easy. Answer some questions about your medical history and chat with a doctor for a con confidential review. If approved by the doctor, products are shipped directly to your door. You don't even have to go out anywhere. No embarrassment at all. Come right to your door. And uh, you can have that erectile without the dysfunction, finally. So try HIMS today by starting out with a free online visit. Go to 4 slash B-C-P-O-D, B-C-Pod. That's F O R H I M S dot com slash B C pod for hymns dot com slash B C pod. See the website for full details and safety information. Uh, this could cost you hundreds of dollars if you went in person to a doctor or pharmacy. So remember, for dot com slash B C pod. Back to the show. What about the death rate itself and the, the characteristics of the disease? Have you What has changed in your mind on, on that, given the data that we've been able to collect in the last couple months? Well, basically, as far as I can tell, our initial estimates were about right. 
there's been a lot of things where people said, well, you can't be that sure. What if it's really different? Uh, but in, in the end, it looks about right. So like people said, what if you can't really get immune? What if you just always get this every year or back and back? But it turns out it looks like you can get immune. What if a lot more people are infected than we realize and therefore it's a lot less deadly than we realize? That was plausible, but no, it looks like it's about the same rate of deadliness as we thought back in February. What are the specifics on that? You said a minute ago that 5% of people have this now. That you, we, we, we have good reason to think it isn't super widespread asymptomatic like some people had hoped? That's the best I can see, yeah, in fact. Basically what's going on is people were using tests that just had high error rates. Mm-hmm. Give and a lot of people tests yeah. and there's a lot of false positives and that's dominating a lot of results. So you, you, know, you have to see pretty high results to believe that it's not just false positives. If you, you know, if it's a false positive rate of 3% and you see 4% infected, well, you weren't sure it was three, maybe it was four. You don't know, right? Yeah. So the death rate then looks at what is the the actual rate there that's best so, you got uh, it? The, this sort of what I used in my cost benefit analysis is like a half a percent mm-hmm. per infected. Five there. Well, then that's averaging, of course, over you know old and sick people and young and healthy people. So in places in Africa or something, people are a lot less old, so they're going to see a lower rate. Etc. But um, yeah, about a half a percent. Okay. So, any other big surprises in in stuff that's come out in data? Or the data still all your model that you had going the first time is still largely numbers. And so, I did a little cost benefit analysis, which you know readers might find interesting. Basically, to say, let's think about the cost of just having everybody, you know, the population get this, and maybe half the population gets infected, and they get infected this half a percent rate. And we use our standard economist metric for like how much is a lost year of life worth? And we fold that into the how old these people and how many years of life they use lose, which is about 12. We put it all together and we say this pandemic, if it just went everywhere and you know infected as many people as it would, that's equivalent to about one month of income. Okay. For all the places to get it. Basically, it's as if you lost one month of your right. income and everybody lost one month of income. So that's not nothing. It's a real thing. If suddenly right. everybody lost one month of income, it would be a real thing. But, you know, if you ask, okay, how many months of lockdown is that worth? And you realize, say, if when you lock down, you're cutting off a quarter of the economy, then four months of lockdown equals one month of income. And you've hurt us as much through everybody getting infected as if, in addition, through your lockdown. Mm-hmm. So that sets a kind of high bar on the lockdown. It says, okay, it's a resource and use it judiciously, but you can easily too do much. Yes. Of course, now it's additional lockdown. Maybe we would have had some degree of lockdown even if they didn't have rules. People would have gone home and been shy about coming out and things like that. But if the lockdown rules are adding more lockdown to what would have happened without the rules, then... You know, four months of that is the same amount of damage as the infection going everywhere. And of course, if you're if you're just delaying it by a few months, and you're going to get both, then you're paying for both. You're you're making the damage hard. So, and an example is unfortunately like nine eleven, right? Nine eleven, we suffered this big loss. A bunch of people got killed. Our pride was hurt, and then we went out and we blew trillions of dollars to you know reaffirm our name and our pride, and that just hurt us more. Right. You know, and it really is possible when the bad thing happens to like make yourself even suffer more by your response to the bad thing. Yeah. Which is kind of metaphoric here that this virus actually works on our own immune system, huh? <laughs> it's kind of, right. kind of an analogy. Right. So, there. so are we saying like, like Robin, let me, I mean, I don't know if this is 
too soon in the conversation, but are you, are you saying you believe maybe we just bought some time so that the, the exact same thing is going to happen? Like if we wouldn't have done lockdown at all, are we getting ready to go through that now? <laughs> like, I mean, is that what uh, opening up the country? I mean, is there any, there isn't any, is it the same? So when people have hope out there, they're hoping that our governments get it, their act together. So basically what we've seen is governance failures. We've seen some places in the world where the government was organized and, and powerful and strong and, and committed and, and able to do things and it did things and they worked. We're not in one of those places. Yeah. And so a lot of people have written a lot of op-eds and a lot of white papers saying, well, we've screwed up this way, but if here's my plan. If you follow my plan, we should be able to look this thing, okay? And from the point of view of that plan, if you followed it and you believe them, then they're right. Hey, follow the plan. It'll just be a few more months of pain, and then we'll look this thing. The problem is there's a dozen plans, mm-hmm, and right. our government doesn't seem very inclined to follow any of them, right? Yeah. Right. That maybe they're impossible somehow, and the governments know that they could anyway. Or I, I, I'm trying to get a grip on that, but like, there's a bunch of things going on. But obviously, one of them is we screwed up initially, right? The CDC screwed up and even prevented testing for a month. And we've done, a, and they won't let people make new mask factories. And there's just all sorts of things we've screwed up, right? So we know right off from the bat we've we screwed up initially, and you know we we don't have very good organized government and so those are the same organizations you'd be asking to do new things are the ones who screwed up so you got to pause on that <laughs> secondly you know we got a president trump who makes the reasonable political calculation do i want to own this problem right and he right. says no this is not a winner problem to own i'm going to push it off to the states it's their problem and uh i'm not going to own it i'm not going to claim that i'm solving this and i have a solution so He's made that stance of let's push it to the states. And most of these white papers says, no, 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 you want a federal, you know, organized effort. And the states, of course, are having a diverse, just like all the nations of the world have diverse policies, the states all have diverse policies. But now we have like weaker borders within the states. So some states will do well and some states will do badly. And then what? Yeah. Yeah, that, it's interesting with Trump because it puts him in that position of where a lot of people think, oh, what an p- opportunity for him to do a power grab and be the authoritarian and grab right. all the power and control everybody. And here he goes, what? Hey, see, look at those governors over there. Hey, they're doing good or bad, but it ain't my problem. Yeah. So it's kind of went against that. Uh, he's the next, you know, kind of a dictator yeah, yeah. kind of thing, but still it's political expedience. Now, the story is that he's Hitler behind the scenes just waiting to take over, right? Then this, according right, to I, that theory, this would have yeah. been his big chance, but no. Yeah, yeah, yeah same as Bill Gates. Like he waited this long to, yeah, he's been a billionaire forever, and, and he's going to wait till now. Or uh, Dr. Fauci waited till now to take over the world. You know, in his eighties or something like that. I don't; those conspiracy theories don't make much sense. But I, I mean, it seems as if nobody knows anything. That I mean, even after months, we do have some more data now, and well, like we I actually said, we know tested. a lot. But what we knew a month ago just didn't look very good, and it still doesn't look very good. We don't want to accept what we know <laughs> just doesn't help us solve the problem. That's the fundamental thing. We right. we actually know a lot, and we haven't, or what we know hasn't changed that much. Basically, some uncertainty has been moved away, and the outcome has been pretty much in the middle of the distribution we expected months ago. Not surprising. It could have been surprising. It wasn't. And so basically, we're in the situation. We've got this thing. It's pretty deadly, but not that deadly. It's very infectious. It's very hard to limit. People get infected and then they don't show symptoms for a long time. And that makes it really hard to find them and catch them before they get to somebody else. We knew that months ago, but now we're, we're stuck in the situation. Months ago, we could have said, 
let's eat it. We 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 failed. We can't manage this. Let's just eat the problem, suffer the suffer what we're going to suffer, and get past it. Rip the bandaid off, basically. And, but no politician can say that, right? They can't say that back then in March. You, you, it'd be political suicide. Well, actually, like you can see, the public health officials were saying that right back then, and then they got stomped on. They didn't expect to get so stomped for saying that. They were right. surprised, just like me. I looked at it, I said, yeah, we failed. This is past it. Sorry. Suck it up. This is gone. And that's what the public health officials said there, too. But then the elites in the world said, hell no. Right. <laughs> how do you define this thing? Elites and that's the- where we are. How do you define elites in the world? Well, I mean, people uh, who write, you know, op-eds for newspapers and, you know, all all those sorts of things. The chattering castes that I know some of, you know, they they all talk to each other on Twitter and um, op-eds and, you know, phone calls and conferences. And they all they talk to each other a lot and they tend to form strong consensus opinions sometimes. And this was one of them. This was like they said, no. Um, so no, if the data and the information is proven to be true, then the it sounds like the lockout is a, a big mistake. Is it, is, it, is it maybe a more detrimental death-causing mistake as much as coronavirus? It's it's a subtle thing of saying um, – So I mean, this is a key thing. There's a difference between sort of abstract policy descriptions and actual policies. And I think you know this is a key thing a lot of people who talk policy don't quite get in the world, right? Most people like me, economics, professors, et cetera, we write papers and we often try to be policy-relevant toward the end, Right? We say, and therefore, I suggest policy should move in this direction. And there's a lot of people like that who talk as if they were influencing policy and speaking to policy. And then there's the world of people who actually pick policies, and they don't listen to that much. And they aren't actually influenced by much of it because they're usually in the weeds of some very complicated political set of constraints, trying to manage that. And a lot depends on sort of details of organization and who does what and what you know rules are and all that sort of thing. And so there's just this big disconnect. People write white papers, hey, we should do this general sort of thing. But then in each state and each nation, they've got a particular person in power with a particular people running the agency and they've got a particular set of laws and a particular set of you know drug companies, et cetera. And you know, what actually happens is very particular packages of policies that happen to opportunistically fit with whatever conditions are there. And that doesn't match very well to the to the white papers, to the general, you know, op-eds. So that's in the category of devil in the details there. It's like, yes, that's the right idea, but that's not going to work. So what I said initially was, look, it doesn't work for you to look at Wuhan or Italy and say, looks like these kind of things have been helping. Let's make up our own version of that here. That's the fundamental mistake is to think you can just roll your own right. based on roughly seeing something that sort of works somewhere else. I, so just like with companies, if you see Starbucks making money selling coffee, does that mean you can go make a coffee company and make money too? Well, no, it doesn't. Why? <laughs> because you have to do a whole bunch of things right to do Starbucks right. You can't just have the idea, yeah, I'll expense, sell expensive coffee too. Let me have a lot of stores too. That's not enough. And this is just true all through the business and organizational world. It's not enough to just look at some success from a distance and write down a few features and say, I'll just do that too, and I'll have the same success. But that's what we were trying to do here with the pandemic. Wuhan succeeded. North Korea succeeded. Well, let's just do something sort of like that. It might have worked to say, let's take the people from South Korea, 
bring them over here, put them in charge and say, we'll do whatever the hell you say because you succeeded. That's what you might do in a company. You might hire the people who worked at Starbucks and bring them over to your company and say, you're from Starbucks, you whatever worked there, you're in charge, do it here. But that's not what we did because that's not what politicians do. In the world over, we aren't usually in the habit of just copying wholesale what works somewhere else in the world. We kind of look over there and we say, ah, it seems to mean this lockdown thing is working. Let's just do that here. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, in Wuhan and in South Korea, they were very aggressive about finding anybody who might have been exposed to somebody and then forcibly locking them up separately from everybody else. We haven't done that here in the United States. Why? Because people would really yell and complain. So we said, well, I guess we don't need that part of it. We'll adapt it to our place, right? And so that's just one example of lots of things, right? In South Korea, they had their drug companies make a whole bunch of tests and they put them to it. And here we said, no, our CDC is making the test and oops, they screwed up and now they need to, you know. And so that's a key thing to think about policy is there's a disconnect between abstract features that seem to correlate with what works and an actual package that works. Mm-hmm. So now in the predicament that we're in, might we consider variolation? And is that is that gained any traction and you're going to stick with that? And how are people reacting to it? We probably had to go ahead and define it here. We may have, we mentioned it last time, but I don't even think by name. Uh, maybe we said variolation, but. So the key idea is if you deliberately infect people, you get a bunch of advantages right off. First of all, you isolate them right after they're infected and you are very efficiently using isolation resources. So in our world today, everybody's isolated, but only because some of us might happen to be infected, but we don't know who. So that's very inefficient use of isolation resources. You infect somebody on purpose, you isolate them, that's very efficient. It's progress each time that happens, basically. Right. You can also more efficiently use medical resources by because you know these are the people who are going to have problems. You can time it. You can locate it. In addition, we can make sure the people who are deliberately infected are the young and healthy who are the most able to handle it. And we can reach herd immunity in the sense of those are the people who get infected and they get it. So those are all advantages of deliberate infection. And they pale in comparison to the idea of variolation, which is we can infect people in a way that the death rate is much lower. So uh, a famous example was smallpox back centuries ago. The death rate was typically, you know, 20 to 30 percent of people who got smallpox died. But then they developed this technique to deliberately infect people with a small dose of the smallpox virus. And those people had a one or two, one to two percent death rate. So that is the notion that uh, there's basically if you get all the way down to the particle level, just the, the level, you get a certain amount of molecules of the virus and the, the more you get the viral load you get a worse case it's, it's in that territory basically you've got this invading army who's going to be recruiting and starting a revolution <laughs> the bigger that invading army the harder it is for your you know internal army to learn about it f- and grow fast enough to respond to this invading army and the revolution it's starting uh, so if it's a tiny little invading force and you find out about it quick you can squash it and be done if it's a big invading force, you don't find out about it soon, then by the time you find out, it's big and kind of hard to deal with. And would, would that be the difference in inhaling, uh, you know, a thousand virus molecules itself versus get, sharing a drink with a sick person and getting 10,000? Is it something like – is that what we're talking about? You kiss somebody who's sick, you, you can get a lot in the kiss, right? If you touch a doorknob two hours after somebody else touched it, 
you might get something, but it would be a pretty small dose, right? They didn't leave much on the doorknob. Most of it died in the, those two hours, and you're getting a tiny dose. And we have seen this dose effect, not just in smallpox, but with other diseases as well, measles and SARS. We've actually seen that people who get bigger doses of the initial infection get sicker and die more. And we've seen factors of three to 30 in these death rates. So we're talking really big. So plausibly, we could cut the death rate from this disease by a factor of three to 30, just by lowering the dose. Mm-hmm. And infected people that don't die from it, typically. Yeah. So, so I mean, that, that would be, of course, it'd be better if nobody died. But if that's not an option anymore, we need a plan B, then that would be better. So in addition, we might also might be able to lower the death rate by where we get infected. So uh, this disease does worse when it infects your lungs. It might do better infecting the throat, uh, infecting the stomach, through the skin. Uh, that's also plausibly uh, where you get affected initially also affects the death rate. And all we really need is a trial of, say, 100 or so people where we just deliberately infect them with different doses and maybe different you know, where, places it comes in to just verify what we think for most diseases is true, viruses is true, that there's this dose effect. And then we could start deliberately infecting people. They could go to like a hero hotel, as I've said. They go there, they get infected, they stay there until they're recovered. And then afterwards, they've got a, a passport that says they can go back to work and socialize. But nobody has been willing to allow this trial yet. I know people who have the funding, have participants and things like that, but we're stuck in a world where the current standard medical ethics practice doesn't allow this. Similar to not being able to sell your organs. Similar to that, yes. Uh, So they just make some rules, which I guess have worked okay in previous decades, but they aren't very well adapted to this circumstance. And unfortunately, this is one of our governance failures. We've got these various autonomous systems in our society that just go on with their previous process and they don't respond to the crisis and nobody's in charge to make them. But nobody in the world though? Like, I mean, I understand here, but somebody else in the world, some other government would let somebody try with a hundred people. You, you might think so, but so far it hasn't happened. And you might realize that's also, even in the past with medical things, like most governments are kind of shy about sticking their neck out about something they could be criticized this much for, right? So when you get to medical and health and, and killing people, right. potentially, then... Any one government's got to be pretty brave to like do something that most of the world is criticizing and not allowing. Mm-hmm. They're going to do it too. Some people might actually die and they could be criticized. That's a pretty risky thing for a politician to do. Yeah. It <laughs> seems though like some kind of country, like China or Russia would just have a hundred folks that they were doing that with. I, I can't believe we couldn't convince, we got to be able to convince a hundred Florida spring breakers. Hey, we're going to infect you, but then you get to stay on the beach this for a month. This is a remarkable fact about our world. So back in 1700, the way we learned about this low-dose infection in the United States was a guy in Boston started doing it to his patients, his clients, <laughs> and he did it to a few dozen of them, and he had those stats, and then he published that in the Royal Society. That was a technique he learned from his slave because that was what they all did in Africa where the slave came from. Oh, wow. And somebody in England learned it from somebody in Istanbul, because in that part of the world, that's what they are. So there was this practice in much of the world, China, Istanbul, Africa, where they all did this low-dose infection. But Europeans didn't know about it. They didn't believe in it. And it took somebody in Boston just to infect their patients, even against the official approval of other people around, of a few dozen patients, to find that to show that they reduced this death rate again from 20 to 30 percent down to 1 to 2 percent. And that was in Boston, which is a town of 10,000 people in 1700s. 
And we today in this world of 7 billion, we have so many rules and procedures and regulations that we don't allow trials like that. Right. So knowing you, though, for you to persist with this argument, you, you on one hand are saying this is not the type of thing anybody ever allows, not anywhere in the world, nowhere, nowhere yet. But yet you persist with it, which means as a pragmatic guy as you are, means you still have hope that it could be adopted or you're not wasting your time on such an offensive idea. So I'm author, co-author of this book, The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. So I've got to own up to not being that clear about my motives here. So I've got to own up to saying maybe my motives aren't so pure and high. I observe that our world is full of these organizations out there, the CDC and and medical ethics boards and things like that, who are in power and make these decisions. And then there's a lot of people like me who on the side give advice. Mm -hmm. And the amazing fact about the world, there's a lot of people like me, especially, (laughs) especially you've seen it in the last few months, a lot of people take a lot of free time and they study this and they write blog posts and white papers and they give interviews and they write op-eds. And there's a whole world of people chattering and talking about this as if anybody was listening. Mm -hmm. And this is the key fact about policy. Typically, nobody's listening. Typically, the people who actually make policy choices are not listening to all these people talking policy. And I have to admit that's true for me too in this situation. There's, you know, these these medical ethics boards out there and they're in charge and they've heard this criticism and they don't care and they're going to do things the way they've been doing them. And in some sense, we don't live in a world where we, the people, can influence policy that much because it's really run by these various organizations and, uh, you know, officials who are in charge. And so that's a very basic question about how does an ordinary person influence the world? Mm-hmm. Do you go become one of these officials and then... You know, if you rise high enough, maybe you could deviate. But of course, you know, lots of people must have done that. Do you advocate revolution and vast change? And then you say, well, but how is that going to make anything different? Mm-hmm. It's the fun. Do you innovate and go to a tech startup and, and try to make a new product that will change the world? It's actually a lot harder to change the world than a lot of people say. Yeah. Everybody, exactly. everybody says, you must believe that you can change the world. Don't give up. Don't be cynical. Have faith. Speak out and tell your mind because that's how the world changes. And it's no, it's not how the world changes. Sometimes the world changes because a lot of people talk, but mostly it, it's elites who talk who have the influence. We, there was this event we talked about you know, a few months ago. The officials said, I guess this is out of hand, and then the elites all said, hell no. Mm-hmm. And enough people said it that the officials had to back down and say, okay, fine. But that wasn't based on clever analysis per se. That was based on more of an emotional, like, we refuse to give up. Yeah. And you know, that's what a lot of people do when they influence the world. They play on emotions and they string, you know, pluck the heartstrings of, of the public and they can get people to do things. But that's not the same as figuring out the best thing to do and making it happen. So fundamentally, I have to admit, after a career being an economist, it's actually hard to figure out how to actually figure out a better policy and then make better policy happen in the world. The people who do that mostly are very elite very high level, the top schools, the top officials, and those people can have some influence, but it's not clear how somebody at my level ever has much influence. <laughs> so, but why, why keep it up with the variolation then? What other motives or hidden motives might you have? I like talking and I like people <laughs> listening to me, right? So, there's all these people talking to each other and saying attaboy and criticizing each other. And even if they don't influence policy, they just may like to be part of that conversation. 
Yeah. And that's unfortunately how people talk a lot. And the basic fact is most conversation isn't actionable. It never influences actions. It just influences conversation. <laughs> it's what other people Jill. say and what they sound like, <laughs> what they, who they like in conversation. They say, I sure like to talk to that person. But it doesn't necessarily change the world in other ways. All right. Before we go any farther, I want to tell you about stamps.com because I love it. For all our sakes, we got to avoid crowds in any way we can right now. We all know that. But what if you need to go to the post office, which you might often do? A lot of people do. I do. I send things in the mail back and forth to everybody, and I don't really like doing it. I don't like going to the post office anyway, and I love being able to do it from home. What if you need postage to send out letters and packages? Don't worry. Stamps.com is here to help. With Stamps.com, you can print postage on demand and skip those lines and crowds at the post office. Plus, you can actually save some time and money with the discounts you can't even get at the post office. And if that wasn't enough, this is the best part. This is new, too. Stamps.com also offers UPS services with discounts up to 62%. And one of those, which I've always not liked and I'm thrilled to avoid now, is that there is no UPS residential surcharges. So, you know, when you go on there and it says, is this going to a residence? And you don't want to check yes because, you know, they charge you more. That is gone with Stamps.com. So Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Services right to your computer with the safety and comfort of your own home, office, or anywhere else you're hunkering down right now. Whether you're a small business sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or you're just working from home and need to mail stuff, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. You can use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail's ready, you just leave it for your mail carrier, schedule a free package pickup, or drop it in a mailbox. No human contact required. It's that simple. And like I said, with Stamps.com, you get great discounts. Five cents off every first-class stamp, up to 62% off shipping rates. Right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. It's amazing. So just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Bad Christian. That's stamps.com. Enter Bad Christian. Stay safe, my friends. Have you, have you, you hadn't come into any trouble for any of your, your points, like on Twitter or anything? Like that's been a, a real disappointing outcome of this as well, is just how no matter what the, the Facebooks and the social medias and the, and the Googles and stuff won't let, they're just, stopping information at all. And some of it is false and wrong, but they won't even trust somebody to figure that out on their own. Have you come in under anything like that? I'm not apparently a big enough fish yet to be worth bothering. (laughs) Somebody else wrote an article proposing variolation and they put it in a conservative magazine called the federalist. And then they were banned from Twitter for for, (laughs) for proposing what I proposed. So I said, I argued for the same thing on Twitter as they did, but they were in the Federalist and I wasn't. And so I guess, you know, they, they got stopped. But Right. If it got adopted as a talking point by some right-wing uh, outlet that seemed dangerous right. and then you got associated with that, maybe you would get banned too. So don't feel so bad. I think so that's bad. true. I think, I think this is telling you that the people who get knocked down for saying things they're not supposed to say are selectively the people perceived to have influence. Right. right. Not right. just random people. That's who really say scary. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. And I think already undermined in this conversation, uh, the depressing part being that I, I admit the same. I just like to talk, but I, I, 
I talk in the thought and hopes that if I stumble on something right, it will right. go somewhere and has hope to be used or, or adopted. But, but this you know, is about the high the levels. Motors. No. So all through your lives, not just in this area of life, we talk as if we have certain kind of motives and we let ourselves believe that. And it's just not very true. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a much smaller effect than we like to think. So we like to think that conversation is about information producing action. And a lot of conversation is just about showing off by talking and making friends by talking, not you know <laughs> actually introducing action. But this guilty. This is also true for medicine and religion and politics and uh, and all sorts schools and all sorts of other areas of our lives. In all of these areas, we're not doing them for the reason we say, mm-hmm. because right. the reason we say is highfalutin and ideal and grand, and the just actual reasons are pretty low and practical and, and selfish. I read the book a couple of years ago and don't you know recall it precisely, but essentially that all of this, even everything that we're doing is largely, and it includes the people that say they're not doing it, are is signaling behavior, is driving a lot of it, and we hide it from our own selves as one of the best methods uh, uh, in order to do it. Is that correct? Yeah, we're, we're trying to avoid blame. So fundamentally, if you ask what do people care about, even more than sex, even more than fame, even more than money, what people fundamentally care about is not being blamed. <laughs> they don't want to be blamed for things. And this anything. drives their action more than anything else. And so your conscious mind is really there to protect yourself from blame. Your mind doesn't actually know what you're doing or why. Your conscious mind is there to tell the story. If somebody says, why did you do that? You have a story to explain why you're doing it, which is why you don't know why you really did things. That's not your job. (laughs) Yeah, right. right. (laughs) Other parts of your mind are in charge of deciding what to do, and they do a great job of deciding what they do. You, the conscious part of your mind, it's not supposed to know what's really going on. You're the press secretary, not the president. Right. Your job is to spin a good story to explain what the president does to yourself and to and to be the president, but you're not the president. You're the press secretary. Yeah. That's who you are. So that's why you believe in all the good stories that you tell about yourself and they seem believable to you. And then if I force you, you'll notice they don't fit that well with what you're actually doing. And then you'll make up excuses and say, well, I better try harder. Or, Gee, I wonder what's going on. Right. Yes. And also the defensiveness that you're ma- like, if you say anything to anybody, I mean, I do it all the time. I ask what I think to be obvious good questions of where places I'm confused and wait for the person to answer the question. What I'm met with 90% of the time is defensiveness, which proves your point there. It's like they just don't want to be wrong. I just, but I was just curious. I swear I was just curious. I didn't know the answer. And now you're defending yourself. But I wasn't attacking. I was just curious. Right. Of course, from their point of view, uh, you're wrong. You are just attacking. You're just lying to yourself about the attacking. And so, (laughs) and they might even be right. I don't know. But the point is, we're all spinning a better story about ourselves than what's really going on. And that's true all the way down. And that's, of course, why we believe our conversation might be effective even when it's not. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, And why we believe being involved in politics would be a lot more effective than it is. And we think that we're involved in politics to make the nation of the world better. Whereas we're really just there to present ourselves as good people and, and make the people around us like. We think we go to the hospital to get well. We think we go to school to learn. And we don't, for the most part. Right. Is well, that I why have even one... somebody like President Trump, like because of his tone and his the meter that he says the words in and stuff like that, it, it doesn't even matter what he says. It just makes some people feel safe. You know, or he, he emulates a, a strong man or something like that. 
Look, if you listen to most any politician's speech, you'll notice they aren't being very precise. Right. Yes. Right. right. They are being kind of vague. And yet people are willing to accept that and read into it what they want to re read and let the person kind of pretend later on they said something else if they want to get out of it or right. even say different things to different audiences and pretend they didn't. We all tolerate that from politicians all the time. That isn't new to Trump. Trump may be new extreme in some dimensions, but the basic fact, politicians are vague. Mm -hmm. And they are emotional, and there's often more trying to ring in emotional tones right. than, than country. Of course, you know, you guys are in music. That's what song lyrics are, too, right? Right. right. Mm -hmm. Song lyrics are Absolutely. much less about the content of the words and what they mean than the rhythm they produce that resonates with the music behind it. Yes. Yeah, That's exactly. so I use that. I've been using that word vague a lot lately to tackle very, maybe very poor resolution, but better than 50 50. I, I like to think on, on people's hidden motives. And I, to me, I use the uh, degree of specificity as a proxy to, you know, yeah. the more specific somebody is, then they're either really lying and really deliberately hiding right. motives versus being vague. So it doesn't matter if it's a pastor or a politician or whatever. Absolutely. They vaguely, but, and the amazing, amazing thing is most people know that fact. And they're still allowing people to be vague and they're being vague themselves. Mm -hmm. So they're giving themselves and other people a pass, basically. Mm -hmm. They're saying, let's give you some wiggle room here so that you aren't going to be nailed to the cross for saying the thing that you said <laughs> that is proven right. wrong. And that's a, a play in a long, like it's a do unto others type of collusion or collective delusion about things. So, you know, you, you don't. Is yeah, that so we often help each other share the same delusions. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> we don't challenge other people's delusions when right. they reinforce ours and they yeah. re support ours. We Girl, you look good. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, when we see a rival, somebody we are looking to take down, then we suddenly become very perceptive about delusions and self-deceptions. Yes. Right. Yeah. Then well, we can see the all root. the hidden motives in yeah. other people at that point when they're a rival. Amazingly, we don't apply that ability to our friends or ourselves. We can switch it off. Yes. Very useful. All, all very much in line with, with that book. It, it's funny even going along with this, and I don't know if it, we, we don't have to go off on this topic, but I've been following more and more people talking about uh, autism and, and some of the, the, the strengths of it, actually. some of And one thing that I keep seeing repeated is it's not like uh, some uh, the autistic people that I follow on social media will say, it's not that I, I don't understand. You're not saying what you mean. Just say yeah. what you mean. And I'm like, oh, wait. That, so that's what it, that's one of the frustrations of right. people without autism is like, yeah, but I just said the thing. But the, the person with autism goes, no, you're not saying what you mean. So how am I, how can I interpret it? Right. And, and you're not and saying it literally. But of course, right. most people are in the habit of figuring out what people mean, which is different from what they literally said. And that's right. part of social skills yes. in the ordinary world is we don't mean what we say and we know it and we are communicating indirectly because it's safer that way. Right. And that's part of being yes. hypocritical. Yes. Yeah, and then you turn around and tell the autistic person or the differently wired person or whatever it is that they're being too literal. Then, but oh, yeah. you won't <laughs> tell them that you're playing a game that, that right. where you're – of course you're not telling the truth, but you're supposed to know I'm not telling the truth and why. And, and, yeah. and, then you, and then you act like it's they are misperceiving something of a rule that they don't necessarily follow or have. The, the, the most distinguishing feature about humans – compared to other animals, was that we had rules and norms that we could support with language and weapons. 
And with these rules and norms, we created this focus on who's following the rules and who can be blamed. And that's why our minds got focused on protecting ourselves from blame. So we are together trying to follow the rules enough not to get caught, but also coordinate to evade the rules. So we together often evade rules together, but pretend we follow. So an example <laughs> is the classic alcohol in a brown paper bag in public. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a rule. You can't carry alcohol in public, but you put the alcohol in a brown paper bag. You drink out of the paper bag. Nobody can see it's alcohol. But of course they know the police know if you're drinking out of a paper bag in public, it's almost certainly alcohol. But you're giving them an excuse to pretend they don't know. They, they don't. don't really, bad. Yeah, they have. They don't want to arrest you. They got other things to do. They don't think it's that bad a thing. But if you wave the bottle of alcohol around in public, they feel they have to do something. You've now blatantly broke the rule. But if you give them a little cover to pretend they don't know you broke the rule, then they're happy to not enforce the rule. We do that all the time all over our societies. So maybe it's an adaptive advantage for society, not just some negative thing that some of us don't like. Well, we are hypocritical about our rules. And so one of the tests that people have to learn to become successful in the world is to learn to figure out which rules actually will be enforced and which rules we're hypocritical about. And that's one of the disadvantages autists have. They're what I call smart, sincere syndrome. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) When they're assigned homework at the school, they figure they have to do all of it. If there's a sign reading, they must read all of it. If there's any rule, they figure it's going to be enforced and they must follow it. And of course, successful people in the world often learn which rules not to to ignore. So for example, in many schools, even law schools, a lot of students cheat and they know they can cheat and they get away with cheating because they know which rules are enforced and which rules are not. And the smart, sincere person, they're obeying the rules and that puts them at a big disadvantage compared to the cheaters. Mm -hmm. Cheating is ubiquitous in a lot of schools because people know which kind of cheating is allowed and which is not Mm -hmm. in the sense of when it's actually enforced. And that's true in our personal lives and at work and all over the place. And so we are hypocritical in many ways, and that's an advantage some of us get. So often there's like, if there's insiders and the outsiders, like a minority or somebody different, often we enforce the rules on the outsider minority, but we don't enforce them on everybody else Mm -hmm. Uh, because we, you know, we get away with it. Right. That makes sense. I've got two other areas I'd like to do while you're here. Uh, I'd like to move from the technical parts of this into some of as an economist even though uh i mean you're an economist fundamentally so while we have your mind here might you give us some economic uh things that are to look for or predictions and anything you know as we all are making our way through the world and i'd like to go from there into talking about the actual uh, industry we're in which is music live events things like that but in the general global or United States economics from your position, what do you see that other people might not see yet? So I think in terms of institutions, mechanism, ways that we organize ourselves to do things. So, you know, just the overall thing I have said before, which is crude lockdowns are very expensive and we can't afford very much of it without sort of doing more damage that way than we the disease would do. That doesn't mean nothing should be done, but it means very crude mechanisms are not very efficient. Uh, they're, they just cost a lot and they don't achieve very particular results. And so what that makes you think about is to say, how could we develop institutions that were more fine-grained, subtle, flexible, that would deal with these sorts of problems? And so 
you know, a standard way people think about pandemics is to say, well, usually you let ordinary people make their ordinary decisions uh, going about their lives. That's fine. But sometimes there are these big collective problems that we all have to make a decision together and all have to do things together. And that may well be true, but we often say that more often than it is true. <laughs> uh, some problem shows up and the first thing we can think of is some sort of collective solution. And then maybe we do it, but maybe if we thought a little longer, we could come up with a, a better approach. So, mm -hmm. for example, pollution is a problem, but instead of just banning cars or something, maybe we can tax pollution. We can have each person pay proportional to the pollution that's coming out of their car, and that can be a more decentralized solution. Now, each person can decide what car to buy and where how much to drive it, et cetera. We don't need to tell everybody whether they buy drive cars or not. Similarly, for a pandemic, the question is, can we find a way to give people good incentives so that they will pay attention to their local context to make their decisions? What context do we want people to pay attention to? First, what's the chance I'm infected? How am I feeling? Who have I been in contact with? Okay. Now, what are the things I might do that if I were infected that would might risk somebody else? Which things are bigger or smaller? Like if I'm outside, the wind blows, it's less of a risk. If I'm in close quarters for a long time, there's more of a risk. You want people to trade off that risk they're imposing against the benefits of, say, going to work and meeting people. And, you know, that's the whole idea of giving individuals incentives so that they can make all those subtle trade-offs that we can't make collectively as society where we decide what are the essential jobs or non-essential jobs or who's allowed to go outside. You know, all those are just so crude. So I've been thinking for a while about ways that we could use liability better to yeah. give people better incentives. And it, in this case, it makes sense to think about infection liability. That is, when you infect somebody and they find out, they sue you and you have to pay a lot of money. Now, one limitation on liability in our world is we've made people liability proof. So in the ancient world, liability, people were poor, but still they were liable because we did two things. First, we said, okay, if you can't pay, we can enslave you, <laughs> put you in a debtor's prison, and that's how we'll get the money out of you. That was, that was a threat that people uh, took seriously. Another thing we said is we can't get the money out of you, we'll get out of your family. We'll go around to your family as much as it takes to get things. And those were real threats that meant people could actually pay and it really hurt to pay. We've taken those things away in the modern world. We've decided, no, we can't take it from your family. No, we're not going to enslave you. And we have to pay for prison if we can't get the money out of your bank account. And, oh, you could go bankrupt, but you get to keep one house. And Yeah, you get to keep your house too, yeah. Right. You know, and so we just made it hard to use liability. So we could either go back to the old ways of letting you enslave, enslave them or take it from your family, but a perhaps better approach is what we do with cars today. On the road with cars, we say you can't be driving unless you have automobile liability insurance. You've set up an insurance company that stands ready to pay if you cause an accident and there's damages. So the idea is we just require you to get infection liability insurance. Mm -hmm. An insurance company has to stand ready to pay should you infect somebody and, uh, then they'll demand a premium for you, and then they'll be interested in your actions. They'll wonder, okay, where are you going? How often? Maybe they want to put an app on your phone to track you. Maybe they want to talk to your friends. You know, maybe it matters whether you're living with an old person. <laughs> you know, they will look into the details, and you and them would negotiate some pattern of behavior that would assure them that you're not that bad, bad a risk. And, and that's all voluntary in that say. Yes. Yeah, well, the key the key requirement is that you must have this infection liability insurance. So we could just do that in general. You're just always required to have infection liability insurance. Or we could say in a pandemic, you have to stay locked down unless you get the insurance. The insurance gets you the passport. You can get out and go do things once you have the liability insurance, because now we're all covered if you go out and hurt somebody. Interesting. <clears throat> so uh, 
how let's talk about then the music business and live events itself. It seems to me that there's growing evidence that the outdoors are much safer. Absolutely. Although, and a lot of this transmission is happening uh, in the air through breath, breathing, uh, proximity, circulation. Uh, The analogy I use in my mind is like a fart. So if you're in somewhere where you wouldn't want somebody that had a really nasty fart to to fart, that's a dangerous place. So those are the environments where it's bad. And anywhere where if the person, other people farted, it wouldn't be that bad to you. That's probably a safer place. So obviously outdoor. So I think the key thing going on here is the nature of rules need to be simple and verifiable. Right. And because we were trying to solve this with rules and this is new and everybody needs to understand these new rules all of a sudden, we are wary of complicated rules that would be hard to explain and enforce and deal with all the edge cases, right? So if you just say, stay six feet away from people, we go, okay, that's a rule. We can look at people and see, are they six feet apart? And we can enforce that rule. And social rules need that level of enforcement. Now, of course, if you stand six feet apart for an hour, that probably is more risk than if you whiz past somebody two feet for two seconds. But our rule isn't reflecting that. It's just got this simple thing. Because we we don't think we could enforce a rule of number of feet times number of minutes. Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, that would be hard to enforce, right? As a rule, but if as your own strategy, I mean, that's how you should be yeah, thinking. Yeah, right. But if you had the liability incentives, you would be navigating that carefully. Like, just like when you, there's a crowd of people and you're trying to hurry to get through the crowd. Well, you often slip past people and you take some chances maybe to bump in them and maybe not because... You're trying to get across the crowd, and if you bump into them, you'll suffer most of the cost of, of you know, stumbling and hurting somebody and feeling embarrassed. And so you, your behavior is very adaptive to if the people are more sparse, you might run faster. If they're more crowded, you might go around, right? You'll think about all those details. But if you just have a rule, everybody has to be two feet away from everybody in a crowd or something, well, those rules just can't accommodate all that detail. And that's what we're doing with the pandemic. We're saying, how do we solve this? We have to impose a simple rule. I mean, the other places they have a rule like you can only go outside once a day, right? <laughs> Stay home and only go outside once a day, right? And that's a simple rule, but it's like, it doesn't all reflect how long you're outside or what you're doing or how close you are to people. And so this is the fundamental thing to understand. When we try to solve things collectively with rules, they're by nature crude. They just can't take much detail into account and of course, the most fundamental thing is they're not taking into account who's actually infective. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the whole point is you you don't you want somebody who's infectious to be away from somebody else, but everybody else is fine. And so we're making these rules for everybody because we don't know collectively who's infectious at the moment. But those people probably know a lot more than we do. Mm-hmm. If you're infectious, you probably have a suspicion who you've been around and what you've been doing, and you could take that into account in your behavior if you had the incentives to. But not if we have rules. So again, coming back to the music thing, okay, you might say outdoors is better, but like we have a rule about the speed of the wind, <laughs> like uh, how long you sit at the concert, uh, you know, do you touch the grass and they touch the grass, uh, you know, you, people go there and they go, I don't know how to set rules there. You have to find a way to make some really simple rules or it's just not going to fly. And but even just having rules. an exception yeah, for music, people rules. go, we have an exception for music. Do we have an exception for swimming? I mean, how long is the list going to go of exceptions? Well, swimming's a good one. You tweeted an article, and I've, I've been thinking that for, for weeks, that uh, the, the swimming pool is probably reasonable. Probably. 
but they're not going to people are going to not do it. Right. But rules, again, have to be simple and they have to get this buy in from everyone. That's what I tweeted. I said, look, if people believe that swimming pools might be risky, then the politicians can't tell them, oh, it's not risky and allow it because then people will be mad at the politicians to get rid of them. Politicians, we go to the lowest common denominator. What does the typical person believe? And policy has to reflect that. And what can they understand? And what rules can they enforce? It's a really low common denominator here. You're going back to really basic things. Yeah. Well, don't we have some time to figure that out and develop some intuitions, though? I mean, if we're in this gap of vaccines. Well, right. so, but that's the key nature of politics. You and I can figure stuff out. But how do we convince the world? Right. Because as soon as people split politically on this, they say, oh, you're giving an argument for that. But you're just on that side. You're, you're those other people. And we don't trust each other. We don't believe each other. We don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. And so we're all demanding very high standards of evidence and proof from the other side if they're ever saying anything that goes against our preconception. That's not an environment where we learn very fast together. Well, what problems might we encounter if I were to take the following approach then? What if it were possible to work on something like a white paper? I don't even know what the definition of that is, although I think I understand what one would be, where you did some science and and really outlined the idea for something like wedding, outdoor concert stuff, and you had some really good, uh, you know, things there about the minutes and the proximity and some good practices there that were signed off by a lot of people, and you tried it in small groups in places where it was uh, – you know, not against a regulation and you could gain some momentum and some traction that way. Like you, you promote an event like a Kickstarter. You say, we're going to try this right. new thing and here's some science on it. And so your no. white paper goes on the pile. Yep. In the last couple of months, dozens and dozens of white papers have gone on the pile where people have done analyses and not just on this, but on much bigger issues about masks and tests and tracing and all sorts of things. And the fundamental fact in say in the United States is Trump doesn't want this issue. He doesn't want to take the initiative to say, I will take this on and push these rules. He, he doesn't want that to be his problem. Congress doesn't want this issue except for handing out cash. Congress says, yeah, we're the cash guys. We hand out cash. Come to us because they get lots of benefits of you know being the guy who hands out cash. People lobby them and that sort of thing. Right. But in terms of setting these rules, they look at that and they go, you know, they're pretty risk averse. We, we, we step our foot in that and we're just going to be in a mess and people will be mad and so, like, you know, they only do something if they have pretty strong consensus. So they throw it on the governors, the states. And now you're one governor and says, well, what do my states think about if I make one of these rules? And, you know, all the different states, they all have different rules. But any one governor is being pretty, you know, shy about deviating too much from what everybody else is doing. If he's going to deviate, he's got to have a good reason. So, you know, if he issues some music concert set of rules. I mean, he's got to worry, like, people will go, you know, you're, especially like we're in this, you know, at the moment, a lot of people are saying lockdown is ending soon. We're going back to normal. A lot of people know, yeah, kind of, but not really, and not for long. But the public hasn't heard that, and they don't want to hear it. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's been part of the problem, right? So people were with lockdown. People were told this won't last very long. They were they were allowed to believe we'll that. On the curve, we'll be out. right. Yeah. Okay. And now you know, three months later. They think, oh, this is a lot longer than I expected. Isn't it time to relax now? And the governors are kind of saying, yeah, 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 we're relaxing now. And the governors kind of know, oh, we can't relax too far for too long because we're going to have a second wave. But they don't want to say that to the public. Right. We wouldn't have accepted the lockdown that we did as much if we'd, if we'd have known it was three months. And when they started saying they're closing school, they said it's going to be two weeks. And it's like, well, 
they already have the emails written for the extensions when they would get you, by the time you get that first one when I look at it, you know. Right, but this often happens in a lot of government things. You know, you 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 lowball so even budgets, right? A lot of projects that go over budget, you promise a low budget initially and later you go surprise, oops, the budget was larger than we thought. Right. And you wouldn't <laughs> you know, have done it differently. Same sort of game, right? Of course. Yeah. Right. But then now you're stuck and you go through with it. And of course, that's true for lots of sorts of pain. Politicians, like it's a standard thing. The troops will be home by Christmas, right? Start the war. It's not going to be a long war. We'll have a short war. They might know it won't be a short war, but that's what they kind of got to say because everybody expects it. And they don't, people don't want to hear the long war thing. And people don't want to hear the long pandemic war thing either. Well, I'm wondering what's going to happen. So, something like compare uh, Florida to California. California is going to have what, apparently way more lockdowns than Florida. And what if Florida... Start, starts thriving what if what if there is a second wave but it, it isn't it, i mean are is the data showing that it, it will be horrific death and overcrowded hospitals and all that stuff what if, is florida have a chance to open up and it's not that bad and and we can do a show in somebody's backyard there what the metric is going to be and and this will be a political choice you know if you're just counting deaths so far then any place that opens up looks bad right if you count like deaths by the end, places that let up might look better. So the key thing is when you see an increase in death rates, is that okay because you're going to get those deaths anyway, or is that no, 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 you're you know preventing the containment we were all hoping for? So remember the key story: everybody was told initially we are not giving up, we are going to contain this thing, yay us, uh, victory, victory before Christmas, and you know we're failing, but a lot of people are still being told that we're still working on that. We're still going to try. And so from that point of view, more deaths is failure because you're failing to contain. If you accept the idea that we're not going to contain this thing and it's going to go most everywhere and it's just a matter of when people get infected, then the standard might be what's the death rate, right? Right. As a percentage of the people infected, how many of them died? As long as you're keeping that rate down because the hospitals don't go to overwhelm, you might say, yeah, we've had more deaths, but we are getting to the destination faster, so we're better, Right. But that's going to be a hard sell to the people who are just going with the deaths and who believe in containment. If you believe it's possible to contain this thing and, and it's a moral failing to not, you're going to look at places that open up and have more deaths but not a bad death rate as failures. That's a real tough spot because it makes the deaths a feature, not a bug, right? I mean, it's, it's progress toward where we're, we're, you know, like the faster, wouldn't it be the argue, the extreme would be if you could get all the deaths over with today that are inevitable anyway, wouldn't that be ideal? If 100%, we know there's going to be 121,000 deaths. That that's going to happen. And you, you have to, you have you know, to Thanos up right at mind, it. Right? Yeah. I mean, and, I mean be... that's horrific. But also, what about the idea of not opening up and the the death that could potentially come from that or the poverty or the, the long-term scale of that, right? Like, I mean, we're talking about the severity of corona specifically or COVID-19 specifically killing people. But as an economist or, or just money-wise, I mean, is that going to cause as much death? It's about a taboo trade-off. So uh, you're not supposed to trade money for death and life. That's right. sort of a moral principle many people have. So there's this uh, famous paper with the title Taboo Trade-Offs in it where uh, people were asked about a hospital administrator who had a budget problem. And there's three scenarios. This hospital administrator has this budget problem and they decide to cut the budget, which lowers the quality of service, or they decide to not cut the budget immediately they say no i have a principle i will not cut the budget whatever problems we have we'll just deal with them or in the third place somebody thought about it for a long time and then finally decided no i'm not going to cut the budget and what people said is that last third person was just as bad as the first Mm -hmm. 
you not only have to make the right decision with the taboo trade-off, you have to not think about it. You have to make it immediately. Consider wow. It. Yeah. Right? Because it's a taboo trade-off. You're, your head shouldn't even be there. You should never even be considering making that sort of trade-off. And that we're in a situation where people frame this as money versus lives. Right. Then they invoke that trade-off and they say, no, we, we must pay any amount. And of course, you know, this is similar in, say, medicine, where... You know, we find it hard to admit there's a value of life, and if a medicine's too expensive, then you know we we you quit and you don't use it because uh, it's more expensive than the gain. Many people say, no, no, we should be willing to subsidize any medicine, no matter how expensive, as long as it might help somebody's somebody you know reduce their death rate. Right. Hmm. So do, that works on this a smaller is, scale, maybe, but on this on this global scale, it seems pretty like I mean, there if we don't start making things there won't be anything right <laughs> i mean yeah we run into supply problems i mean we, i mean we're going to be in really bad shape and i'm i'm pro, i stay away from people as much as i can i don't want anybody to die nobody wants anybody to die i, I get it 100 let's but it's been such a bad botched job that we don't like you said we don't have any clear thing any real restrictions that we've said hey this is no matter what we're going to do and there's 12 ideas out there a hundred thousand ideas out there probably that that's what i'm saying like we were th- maybe it Maybe we should go play with our band because otherwise you you won't you won't or you will and the same thing's going to happen either way. We're in a tough spot, uh, and unfortunately, you know, you and I aren't free to make all these choices necessarily. Right. We can push in some direction, but other people will push back. And unfortunately, you know, the people who influence these things a lot more are elites. So we're not in a world where everybody's opinion counts the same. Uh, even if you all have the same number of votes, uh, elites have a lot more opinion and they tend to can handle this more. Elites, people can work from home more easily. Elites have more savings. They can survive. They you know can save up longer and survive more at home. And so they're just feeling the pain less and they're feeling the moral self-righteousness more right. of you know not giving up. And of course, they feel all the more if they're rich, they're guilty for being rich. And therefore, they yeah. should all the more emphasize that they don't think money is more important than lives. Oh, that's right. just a guilt thing for sure. Yeah. That's 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 well noticed. The uh, is this going to spell then in the macroeconomic sense? Is, do you have any predictions on the you know is the stock market for instance now seems like way delusional or something? Um, the stock market is supposed to be a long term indicator, so it's not supposed to focus that much on the short term. So I, I'm I'm willing to give the stock market a pass. And then early on, when people were saying, "Oh, the price is wrong," I said, "You know, you, know, you got to think about the long run consequences here." So I I'd say the thing that it's looking at shaking out here over the next few months and, and year is some countries and places in the world manage to keep it out and keep the infections low and contain it. Other places don't, and now these two groups of places can't interact as much. Right. And now you split the world into these two groups and it matters which group is the bigger one. Right. If if the groups that keep it out are a small fraction of the world, then they're in trouble because now they've you know limited trade and travel with all the bigger part of the world. And they're going to suffer trying to contain, the, you know, keep everybody else out. If most of the world is the ones that manages to contain, it's only an exception. Then the exceptional ones are the ones who like. Uh, have to be different, but uh, like and the ones who are all infected, they don't have to worry so much about exposure to the others. It's asymmetric, right? 
Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, and then it's a matter of like in the United States, you know, we've got millions of people coming across illegally across the borders, even though we have rules that prevent that. You, you can disagree about whether it's good or bad, but the idea that we can enforce borders strongly over long time scales, that's pretty iffy, right? Yeah. Uh, but you've got these scenarios where big chunks of the world need to keep borders strong against all the infected on the other side of the border. That's a really challenging scenario. They're already struggling now and maybe 5% of the world's in, of, of places are infected. What if, you know, 70% of a place is infected and then some of them want to cross the border? Yeah, that's going to ramp it up. So I think migration itself was going to be crazy. I mean, even just domestically, people moving from one oh, state to the right. other as things shake out. I think you out, might see a mass exodus see. out of California and you might see people move to Texas or Florida or maybe a lot, a lot of industry or a lot of money could go somewhere where they're like, well, I got to, you know, I mean, right now I, I listen to a lot of sports podcasts and all the sports people are trying to figure out how do we get baseball back? You know, baseball's talking right now, 80 games instead of a hundred and what, 60, eight, something like that. And, uh, and they're talking about this, and we're going to have less income, and the players are like, no. But, I mean, what What if you can only play in a few states? Maybe all the the basketball teams are playing one state or something like that. I don't know. That's, it's, it, something is going to happen, though, right? I mean, the country is going to open up, regardless of what the government says, I believe. I mean, the, the, the country is going to open up no matter what the government tries to enforce. Just this, Like you were saying, illegal immigration, you're not going to stop. You're not going to stop the hair salon lady or the other people. And you, I don't see how you could even enforce that. I want to go get my haircut. You can't stop me. I'll risk my life. I've been framing this as saying like the public kind of basically wants to get out. And it's been elites who've been saying, no, 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 no. We need to lock it down. Back when elite said to lock down in the first place, they spoke with a unified voice with a simple message. And that one, right. now they're not speaking with a unified voice. Right. They're saying a bunch of different things, and that's not going to be nearly as effective when the pressure is to get out. And some people tell me, you know what? It's the capitalists behind all of this, not the ordinary people. Ordinary people would be happy to stay home all the time if we send them checks. It's only the companies refusing to pay them the full wages, even though they're not don't get any revenue. Those are the evil ones who are pushing for the breakup to lockdown, which seems kind of crazy <laughs> to blame the companies. I mean, if you handed them cash, they might be willing to stay too, but there is no cash to hand everybody. And, and actually, a lot of these governments, the state governments, they realize they are short on cash. They are running out of money, and they want to from the government's point of view, get this over with so that they can reduce the pain that comes directly through their revenue. I know North Carolina, where I live, just furloughed almost everybody on, on the North Carolina DOT working on the roads. And I was like, oh, and they said they, they're, they're like 300 million short. And I was like, wait a minute, that, you, what are you going to do? I mean, you, that, that is the big the we're, thing We're in depression like, territory. So uh, we are at great risk of a the long extended economic cost of this, like the Great Depression or the Great Recession. So a basic fact about uh, unemployment rates is that unemployment rates tend to fall at a very steady rate until something knocks them up again, and then they fall at a steady rate. It's not a symmetric up or down. They go up, unemployment goes way up all at once, and then it comes down steadily. So that's what we saw, say, after the Great Recession, you know, 10 years ago, uh, a sudden increase and a slow decline slow, steady decline. So that means we may take a while to recover from this. You know, if if people lose their jobs and then the government doesn't can't, can't afford to pay workers and then people can't afford to buy as much food or go to restaurants, I mean, that's a hard thing to get out of. Right. Like decade recovery type of thing, you know. It might well. So 
you know, we can we can handle short terms. Like, you know, we we get off on the weekend. We, we you know, most everybody stops working for a month at Christmas. I mean, we're all set up for ways that we can handle relatively short, you know, breaks from things. But this is moving in past that sort of territory into the territory where companies are running out of cash and going bankrupt. People are losing jobs. That's the territory where it gets a lot harder to recover fast. Are, are we in danger? Uh, I've heard several people say something like we're in danger of completely losing the middle class and it's just uh, rich and poor and all the middle tier companies are gone. Like, you know, uh, I've been concerned about a lot of the advertising companies that we work with that aren't massive companies, but they're big, but they're, you know, they're not the, the massive humongous corporations and they're maybe a niche company, you know, whatever it might be they're selling. Are those maybe, are we restructuring where a lot of uh, entrepreneurial people and business owners are gone? And well, it's just every, every, there's a business cycle that's been going on for centuries. You know, every six years on average, they, we, the economy goes up and down. And in a downturn, that's a time when marginal companies go bust. And sort of the, the, the healthier companies go, whew, our competition's moving away a bit. And often, if you're a new startup company, that's a time to start a new company is right during the downturn because you're facing less competition and you can ramp up. So we'll see that same sort of effect here, no doubt. A surprise and weak companies on the margin. Uh, certainly a lot of restaurants in the area, probably. Right. They just can't handle, keep paying the rent, but don't have any revenue. They're just going to go bust. Well, this is a good spot to transition uh, exactly to the next thing I want to talk about, which is kind of disconnected, but not really if you think about it through this uh the segue I'll make here. The point of that being is the is the small businesses going out. Is it consolidate everything into the big and the small? So the the, the division, the wealth distribution, uh, the elites. That's all themes of this conversation. And Robin, you go to a, a very very far extreme of uh, of thinking down the line with your book, The Age of M. It's it's really where resources become totally. Uh, resources being ultimately intelligence and computing become the ultimate uh, resources, and they become almost entirely consolidated in in the hands of just a few. Is that related well, here um, as we speed up that trend? Change. So tell everybody, the book, The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the Earth, it's about a scenario that would happen, say, in roughly a century, not soon, <laughs> where we achieve a certain kind of artificial intelligence that's as smart as people, called a brain emulation. These are very human-like robots, and so we can predict a lot of what they do because they act in a lot of the ways that humans would in the same situation. Um, the world changes enormously in this, in this change. Uh, it's as different as our world is different from people a thousand years ago in the farming era, or the different from there, from the foragers for 100,000 years before that. It's a huge difference, and there's winners and losers. Um, in this scenario, humans like us become these robots. But although there's maybe 7 billion of us today, this new economy only wants a few hundred of them because it can make as many copies of each one as it likes. So that means this new economy is dominated by copies of these robots, each of whom is a copy of a particular human. But there's billions and trillions of these copies, but they're still copies mostly of the few hundred best humans. So right. that's a sense in which there's a big inequality, but they're not rich because this is a new Malthusian world, a subsistence world. So 
Our era today is unusual and we have high per person wealth, high per person income, but through most of human history and through most of the animal world, people have lived at subsistence. That is, they barely make enough to survive. And we, this world is like that. These robots are actually living at subsistence because it's so easy to make copies of them and make more of them. They do make copies up until the point where they can't afford to make more because those new ones can't afford to feed themselves. They can't uh, you know, pay their way. So in this world of these robots, they are very competitive. So none of them is getting a big advantage. And each robot, each M, as I call it, brain emulation, is living poorly, but they are part of these big clans, all of whom were copies of the same original, and there's a limited number of clans. So, you know, so the question is, do you think of that as, as equality or concentration or not? <laughs> well, let's go a little even slower to get there and, and say that, uh, see if I'm understanding correctly, that basically the economics drive, if my understanding is that you wrote this book, which is a science fiction book, and I'm, I don't know how you answer the uh, question of how, why you wrote it, but it's, it's, it seems to be a, th a thought experiment and a way to really think about how the future might go more than it is just to entertain people with fiction. Right. So it's presented as nonfiction in the sense that it's like science fiction, except there's no plot, there's no characters, and it all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Okay. That's better said than Okay. <laughs> so my attempt, my claim was that it's possible to actually work out a scenario and have it make sense. So, so many people say you can't possibly understand the future and you can't possibly predict what's going to happen. And therefore, science fiction, et cetera, is the best we can do, even though it doesn't make sense. And I wanted to say, no, you can work out a scenario and have it make sense. The scenario has assumptions, and the key assumption is brain emulations show up before other kinds of smart robots. Okay. So at the moment they show up, I mean, so I'm pretty sure that eventually they'll show up. Eventually it will be possible. It's just a matter of when. If when they are feasible, we've already automated all the jobs away anyway, then there's nothing for these brain emulations to do, in which case the scenario doesn't play out. I actually think that's less likely it's more likely that emulations will show up when there's still a lot of jobs to do, in which case the scenario plays out. And so then in that, given that assumption, I'm just applying standard econ 101 and all sorts of other standard, you know, social science and analysis to say, how does that world play out and what does it look like from a distance? And it's very crude and very summary, but in part, I want to prepare us if that's going to happen. And also, I just want to show you it's possible to think things through. You don't just have to... <laughs> take some, you know, wild speculation that's dramatic and inspiring and that doesn't make much sense when you think about it as the best we can do, we can do a lot better than that. Yes. And in this scenario is a real consolidation of the best minds are the only ones that would be emulated or the ones that would be most emulated and they would get the best computing resources and an average mind like mine really has no place in the future. Right, but you know, you have to realize that if you look at the broad sweep of history, <laughs> That's true from where you came from, too, right? Look, the vast majority of men in the past uh, never had any children. Right. Okay. Yeah. And a great number of societies were all wiped out. We are all descendants from a tiny fraction of the winners of the past. And that's the nature of biology. Uh, it's even true of the companies, whatever company you work for, you know, the companies that exist today are a tiny fraction of the companies that existed 50 years ago. Most companies are created, and then most of them die off, and a small fraction succeed and grow. And that's just the nature of long-term change. So, um, you know, you shouldn't have expected you to survive for centuries 
yeah, and be guaranteed. In a competitive world where things change, uh, you know, it's, you expect it to be pretty random. Some, a few things succeed a lot, and most things don't. But it's like Amazon is to business and LeBron James is to basketball. The best minds are the ones that deserve the resources and will we'll get to go on. Right, although they're not necessarily the best minds according to our metrics, okay. but they're pretty damn impressive. But they're basically the best at living in that world and functioning and surviving. So, you know, they're going to do a lot of mundane jobs, and it's the best at that job who gets to take that job, not the one who has the highest degrees or, you know, the most lauding praise or whatever. So it's the best in a very functional, you know, can function most cost effectively at doing the thing. So as a result, they're actually working many hours a day. They, they, they don't have that many hours of leisure because they're so competitive trying to make sure they get a lot done. They live and work in virtual reality mostly, so they don't ever need to feel pain or hunger or disease or grime. So their, their bodies are young and beautiful if they want them, and uh, the, the world around them looks gorgeous, but they're working most of the time. And they're aware of the, of the outside world, us? So of course. Yeah. You're just like, you know, you're sitting in a room right now, and they have walls with paint and stuff on them. You know right. that behind the paint, there's, you know, wood and, and pl plasterboard and stuff. But you don't want to think about it. You don't right. need to think about it. You just know it's there. For them, they know they're in virtual reality, but that's where they want to be. It's just like right. you living in a painted house. <laughs> that's good. Um, uh, that's I'm sorry. I do want to do one more thing here. I did not know this. I and I appreciate all your time today. Uh, we've covered Elephant Brain and Age of M, both things I think worth people checking out if they're fascinated at all by what we're talking about here at this level. But uh, I was on Wikipedia. I saw it that uh, we Toby and I were talking about the Fermi paradox a while back, and we didn't really get into it. And I love thinking about that. I've thought about it my almost for just. A long time I've thought about this kind of stuff in the Goldilocks zone. This is stuff I've known my whole life or been aware of the territory of. And I talk, I've talked many times and thought about the great filter. And I looked in, I was just looking at your Wikipedia page to refresh. That's your idea? That's my name. And it's my twist on an idea. But you're credited with the guy that had has named the Great Filter. Wow. That's you. Exactly. I mean, I don't know if everybody knows what that is, but I, I do. And Toby, you do, right? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, it, people have noticed before, long before me, that right. the sky looks dead. And yet, if there were lots of aliens, that's puzzling because you think some of them would go out there and do stuff that we could see. Right. So that was Fermi's question, they said long ago. He said, Where is everybody? If there's aliens out there, some of them ought to be around here, around somewhere we could see, and we don't see them. Mm -hmm. So I reframed that question by saying, well, what you see out there is the end result of a filter. That is, all sorts of planets and stars start out dead, and then some of them grow some basic simple life. And then nearby, that life slowly over that billions of years changes and sort of evolves and develops into more advanced forms but all along that path there are things that could go wrong and in order to get to the end of the path where you might be so advanced that you make a big visible impact on the universe you have to go through a lot of steps in this path where you might lose and, and die and, and disappear and that's the filter the filter is all of those things that could go wrong along the path from starting out from the most simple life to the advanced civilization that would make a visible impact on the universe. So the Great Filter is the name for the net effect of all that filter, and the key observation is that it must be big. Mm -hmm. 
even if plausibly lots of places started out life, you look up and none of them have gotten to the point where they've made a really big visible effect. So something along that path is really limiting. So, you know, there might be 10 to the 24 planets out there that we could see from here. And none of them so far have made such a visible effect that we can see it. So that means the filter is at least 10 to the 24. Mm -hmm. And so I framed this where they where is everybody question in terms of this filter and the key a key question is where are we along the filter yes right is the filter the cell, cellular organization or is it nuclear uh, power you know we're not yet able to make a big visible impact on the universe so we are not at that point yet we foresee that that's a plausible place we might go but we're not there yet so the question is how close are we and not just how close in time but in terms of the filter steps so Say only 10 to the 20 of these steps was behind us and 10 to the 4 was ahead of us. Well, that means we only have a 1 in 10,000 chance of making it, Yeah, right. which is pretty discouraging. So just even a small filter ahead of us is like it means we're, we're probably not going to make it. Something's going to go wrong, which right. is pretty scary. So it's really kind of important to wonder, like, how far through this thing are we? And one key observation is if we see anything out there in the universe that's before us on the path that didn't share our path then that would suggest that the, the steps up to that point can't be that hard, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that would mean that those early steps aren't as difficult in the filter, which means later steps have to be harder. So if we found bacteria on Mars, that would, in, in the great filter framing, that'd be almost bad news. Yeah, the more advanced you saw, stuff you see on Mars, the worse bad news that is, is that about our future. We've got to go at, not behind us, I guess it's got to be ahead of us. We're in Because you go, well, it's, it's reasonably, it, it, if we found 20 places where we found single cell life, we go, well, that isn't the hard part. So the hard part and is... All the steps up to that point aren't the hard part. Something after that, exactly. So that was my original contribution is by framing this where is everybody question in terms of a filter, I could then frame it in terms of where are we along the filter and what evidence would be bad news about where we are along the filter. And what's your current thinking on where we are? Well, uh, there's, there's two ways to think about this. One is to say if we look at all the different steps and which ones we understand well, you've got, you got to say the earliest steps we understand the least. Okay, we, we hardly know anything about the initial evolution of life because it's just really damn complicated. It's also the most plausible place for it to be really, really hard. I mean, the simplest living systems we know are amazingly complicated compared to what you think a random system could produce. So that means whew, it's not crazy at all to think the bulk of the filter is at the very beginning and we're all the way past it. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you see advanced life out there, that's going to tell you that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to go back to basics. But then I got to say is, okay, that's plausible. But how sure do you feel about that? Because <laughs> remember, you know, if most of the filter was, was way back then and just a bit is still ahead of us, you know, if just one factor of 10 is ahead of us out of the whole 24 factors of 10, that still means we only have a 10% chance of making it. That means a 90% chance that we're get crushed. <laughs> which is pretty discouraging, right? right. So I still think you got to say, okay, even if you, you, you give the benefit of the doubt of saying most of it's probably at the beginning, you still got to worry about what's left. You, you still can't be <laughs> well, that confident. So still at least a 90% chance that humanity's doomed. I mean, <laughs> well, it's not doomed, but it means it's a tough road. You got to, we, we need to be wary and watching. And, you know, so, the, the Intel CEO, I guess, Grove, once had a you know book basically where he said, well, I had to be paranoid. 
in order to survive in this industry that changes a lot and very competitive, we only the paranoid survive. You have to be constantly saying what could go wrong and getting in front of that. And even if you don't see clear indications, you have to jump on any possible thing that could go wrong and prevent it. If we had been paranoid about this pandemic, of course, we would have gotten on it earlier. We were not right. sufficiently paranoid. And, you know, we should just be therefore more paranoid about other stuff in the future and even paying substantial costs. You know, slowing ourselves down is not that bad a thing compared to watching out for like something we could stumble into with by going too fast. But right. you know, there's other things we can do a lot of things wrong by trying to crudely slow things down in ways that hurt things. So you have to, you know, that can be the source of the problem as well. So yeah, we're doing lots of negative, uh, lots yeah. of negative speculation on this episode, which is totally fine with me. I think that's a good exercise to do, but I think some people will probably feel that way about it, but I do hear a silver lining in that, uh, with the pandemic and where we're at, it's a, it really is opportunity to reconsider risk and risk management and right. calculations. Absolutely. Stuff like that. That's really positive. Look, there's a lot of things that we could change in our society that there are really big potentials for changing things for the better. But in times of peace and prosperity, we shrug our shoulders and go, things seem okay and fine. Let's not rock the boat. Let's right. let it be. When you have a big crisis and things go wrong, then people are much more willing right after that to go, okay. <laughs> This wasn't going so well. Let's reconsider and reevaluate. And so I'm very hopeful about that because that's the sort of thing I've been working on for a long time. Big ideas about how we could change things. And I've been disappointed in peace and prosperity where people are too comfortable and they're not that eager to change. But so I'm hopeful after this pandemic crisis, when it's still fresh in our mind, we've survived it, but we suffered a lot of pain. Then maybe we will be willing to reconsider governance and a lot of things, liability, uh, lots of big, even potentials of new pandemics and what we should be watching out for, we will be more willing to change. Mm -hmm. Being willing to change is very good quality. It, you know, more than have, being right at any given moment is the ability to change and the willingness to do so. So thanks for challenging a lot of people's assumptions and doing the hard work of being contrarian. Um, I'm always happy to give a, a contrarian a, a, a platform and a voice. I think they're squashed way too often. And uh, I always find people say to me, they say, you're just being contrarian. I sign up. What's wrong? I mean, right. I wish more people were. I, I don't. I mean, the you know, right. it just seems seems obvious to me. But I appreciate you doing yeah. the, the work. Among times in history, you get punished the least for being contrarian. Now, <laughs> contrarians were a lot more right. punished in the right. past. Right. You, you have to put their hat on them. They they put up with a lot more if they were yeah. contrarian. <laughs> All you do, you got a few people on Twitter yelling at you, yeah. you know, so what? <laughs> <laughs> well, some, most people can't not handle that. Come on. But yeah. yeah, well, you do a great job. You've got a, you, you, you do a great job of staying with it and continuing to say what's obviously <laughs> clearly what you've thought about and calculated and come what may on Twitter and, and, and stuff. So I always find your voice to be a reliable one in that I find it sincere. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and Robin, thank you for your time again, man. Hopefully we'll get you back on in the future and have some more information. Thank you. This whole pandemic is going to go somewhere, and in a couple of months, we'll have a whole new perspective on who was right about what. Yep. Yeah, we'll, we'll, right. we'll get back to it. Thank you, Robin. Yeah. Thank you, okay, Robin. Take care. All right. Um, I think I'm one of those people that is now just even feels worse. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, what, yeah, of course. Like, I mean, it, it sounds like to me. That's like, okay, though. He did, I wish he would have, uh, he, you know, he's smart enough not, maybe not to, predict something or say something too strong in a sense of 
he doesn't know. He's being wise or cautious. But it feels like to me, a person who runs on just pure emotion, that out of everything I'm hearing, the lockdown just paused the pain that we have to go through. And so there isn't a way to avoid the pain. And that, <laughs> it might be real bad. And so, I mean, and now it paused it and the, like, I mean, how bad would it be with a a good economy, people dying? But how about how bad is it with a bad economy and people dying? Like I don't, you know what I mean. Like it, he says, right. he said you have the, the opportunity twice. during bad times. You have the opportunity to make things worse, and and I just don't know. And also, still the thing that really bothers me is I can't. How bad is corona? The, the death rate, the hospitalization. The I mean, they're saying now like eighty percent of people who are intubated die. Now they've maybe always known that's always been true. The narratives that have come across are not. Like Robin said, they're giving you what you can handle and ways you can handle it for low-hanging fruit reasons. Ventilators before this crisis were were already known by the medical community says that ventilators are what you do to buy time for the family to say goodbye. That's what (sighs) ventilators are. Because when you put somebody on a ventilator, you don't come back. I mean, it's like 80% of people don't recover, but that's the normal rate or something like the normal rate of people that don't recover on ventilators because you only do that when your lungs are almost done and then you take the fight part out of the lungs. Like now they don't have to fight and then you just, that's death mode. So you might recover, but so. I mean, there there is, I I mean, I've been saying it for a while, but there's a real part of me that thinks, man, if I had already had it and just you know, gotten through it. Now I've heard a lot of bad stories. You know, we have some folks in the BC club that have gone through it and I, I don't wish it on anybody. And, and, you know, and then I know some people who've had it in asymptomatic. I know mm-hmm. some people that had it and, it, it, you know, they had it for a little bit of time. Like, uh, it, it's just, it's so frustrating because you don't know. And the real frustrating part is seems like we're going to get it like the chicken pox. My brother had it and my mom put me in the room or I, uh, actually I had it and she put him in the room mm-hmm. and yeah. he got that's, it. That's kind of like variolation right there, right? by the way. Yeah, right. That's, exactly is. Yeah. And that was my mom and dad giving us sickness. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Just giving it to my brother who is completely healthy and younger than me. <laughs> and over with. And, and then... It was good. It worked out okay. Or at least it was, you know, I guess they were thinking, well, if he's going to maybe get it at some point, so then we have to go through the whole thing again, so let's just get it all over now. All the pain, let's just get it over now. And then we'll be Mm -hmm. through it, and it'll suck, but we'll get through it. But, I mean, I understand you can't say that. I mean, you can't just say that about people. Who's volunteering to take the coronavirus? And, who, you know what I mean? That's the real thing. Like, it. in theory, I understand that idea. And then who's signing up? The, The young people, but... What happens when a certain percentage of them will die from it still? Even, you know what I mean? Right? Like, yeah. you can't guarantee a healthy 24 year old that you inject with even a small part of the virus will live. Well, it- let me give you a good piece of good news and we'll move on from there. So, uh, I saw yesterday, uh, I think, in a pretty good source. I can't remember what it was. I'll try to back it up if somebody wants to know. But people under 45. Yeah. Out of. It's something like between 10 and 80 out of 10,000 have died. So I think there's only 10 people under 45 that do not have any pre-existing condition have died. Wow. So that's wild. That's, that's, you know, of course it's bad news for some, but it's, there's no way that you can't accept that as some, some form of good news and, and good news in the sense that 
you know, how much do you really want to carry your own death based on what groceries you touch in your mind? Like right. the fact that, that that a giant amount of the population can put that out of their mind and make rational decisions is a very positive thing. I'm not saying it's good right. who lives and dies or whatever, or what groups, because it, it could go the other way. But like 10 people have died from just get like, I, I always feel that you, it, you could die from anything. I mean, don't you feel fragile? Like you could, sure. your heart could stop today. You already feel that way, I but always, it turns I've out it's been probably not true. I thought I've been right. thinking I was going to die since I was 16 years old. And if you are under 45 and you do not have, a, and they said there might be more people that had an underlying condition they didn't know, but pretty much if you are a healthy under 45 year old, it is, I mean, like 10 people have died. I mean, you somebody check right. that out. They said it might be as high as 80 based on unknown underlying sure, sure, conditions, sure. but that, 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 that stat's not out there very widely because right. it sounds like you're gloating that you're in a protected group or something, but it is right. true. So it should relieve the baseline anxiety of many people and allow them to start making right. their own risk calculated decisions like you do with automobiles and other stuff like that. So who's going to sign up for it is a different question, but I'll give you two choices in sign-ups. Okay. You, you only can sign up for two things. One, okay. variolation. You can get deadly disease. That's right. your choice. Or, or maybe both. You can do both and sign up for the BC Club. <laughs> right now that it's just that, two choices friend, you got me on that one i, I was not at all that one got me i that, that, that's a pro pro yeah that's a oh man i'm impressed with that my god people should join the bc club alone for that that i was ready for this other option where i was like I, oh i didn't know about this other option for me and <laughs> You're right. I, why well, you did I sign think up. about the BC Club? That is a great option. Variolation, BC Club, maybe both, but right. those are your choices. One of them, you get a disease. Oh, and and it still might be fun. the right thing to say, and you might should sign up for that. Right. Now, there's other thing you can sign up for. It's all positive. You get a oh, community. Boy. You get more episodes per week. You will get... Uh, interactions with other people, you'll learn new things, and the best part is you will feel like you have made a difference because you will have made a difference to yep. me and Toby for the work we do. If you call this work or j hanging out, whatever it is, if we will be supporting you something bit. that does entertain you and maybe provide information to people if you like it and you support it. It'll help it keep keep yep. going. So that's a good thing to sign up for, and it's not very expensive. It costs like you know less than. Uh, it's like getting two coffees a month less at Starbucks. And I don't think you're going to Starbucks so much uh -huh. anymore. So you might have that seven bucks. So make the coffee at your house and listen to this yeah. podcast and get all the extras. We do a Monday and a Friday episode. We go live in the club. Um, a lot of uh, – it's crazy. A lot of stuff still even coming up in the future. I mean, we're, we're still we're, – Matt and I were talking about the doc. That, uh, you know, it's funny, after watching the Michael Jordan doc – and then I, I was just listening to some other people, like even the, uh, what was the fellow that we had on about the, uh, was it Burmese, Burma? Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and he was talking about, they the, thought the they Rangers. would have the dock done, and then it took like eight years later. Well, we're going to beat that time frame. Oh, but, yeah, we're beating but that. It's we're neat because put together this month. Yeah, seeing the dock come together and the story that happened in it, you know what I mean? Like, you, you have an idea of what, and then talking to you, I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like, there's a story you think, and then a real story emerges that is really awesome even. And, and I mean, it's, it, it, the doc stays the same and, and you know, the idea of it, but there's a real story there that I think is going to, is being really captured really well. And so there's just a lot going on. You should definitely 100% join the BC club. If you don't, then, 
I won't do anything. I'll just be sad. But I would there'll be to. no consequences that you'll perceive. Yeah, there's but no, yeah. you won't ever know the counterfactual of what might have been. Yeah, what might have been. <laughs> be on the positive side of history, my friend. And if we have a, a, a testimonial commercial of a clubber, we can roll it at this time, and we will see you guys next Wednesday, or if you're in the club, we'll see you Friday. Yeah. Yep. Hey, gang. This is Rob from Hartville, Ohio. I'm a member of the BC Club. I'm actually one of the old farts in the BC Club. I've been around for a long time. And the reason I joined is just wanted to be part of what was going on. I had uh, kind of changed a lot of ways I thought really thought, well, heck, I want to support what they're doing and keep them going for as long as they can. So became a member of the community at that point. And what's kept me here has been the relationships, the friendships, the real community that I've built here. Uh, there are folks all over the country that I would never have had a chance to meet if I hadn't become part of the club. So if you get a chance, come join us. Come jump in the pool. The water's warm. Stop trying.